So this morning we, we spoke about Luke chapter 9. Today uh, we're just going to be one page over Luke chapter 10, um, which is, f- when you read it quickly, it seems f- somewhat similar. Uh, in chapter 9, he, he, he sends out 12. Uh, in chapter 10, he sends out 70. Uh, and yet, when you study it, when you go through it slowly, you'll realize that um, there's quite a big difference going on between these two chapters. Uh, I was a little bit hard on the, on the 12 disciples. Um, but the truth is, they were special. Um, and we know this. When you look at the Bible, when you look at the Old Testament, I think is a really good way of seeing it. Um, God chooses specific men and women for their time. There, there are people that God chooses specifically for a specific message. Um, and because of that responsibility, he's much harder on them than he is with, let's say, the rest of Israel. Um, and I think we, we know this, right? When you read the stories, those, that, those men that were chosen by God carry a much stronger uh, blessing, but also a much stronger responsibility. These, these 12 apostles um, were special. They, they did something that uh, very few others did, which was not only to bring the message of God to the world, um, but it was a new message, right? God was literally speaking new words to them, and, which is why we have a New Testament, which is why we have um, the complete Bible now. Um, and so God, so Jesus really was very hard on them, much harder on them than he was on the rest of the disciples that were following along. Chapter 10 is kind of the everyday member. Alright? So there's, there's certain people, and I'm sure you guys know, you know, the ones that start new mission fields, the ones that start new missions and, and new projects and that really push God's message into a brand new direction. Those are special men that God chooses and therefore need, you know, much more responsibility. God is much harder on them. And we know this. Ellen White talks about, even as Adventists, right? God is going to judge us more because of what we know, because of our knowledge, than someone that just might read the Bible and, you know, doesn't have uh, as much light. That's how you, we usually say, right, as, as others. Um, chapter 10, then, is more, this is kind of how I like to see it. This is more for the average member in the pew. All right, so in the last chapter, God sent out the apostles. Now God is sending out his disciples, 70 men. That he's, we don't know any of their names, but 70 men that God sent out. And we're going to see the difference in, in style. We're going to see the difference that, in what Jesus actually says to them. Um, and I think to a certain degree, I think it, this, this chapter is actually more impactful for us because I think it's more us, you know, the average member than, and what's our mission what's our purpose so let's read it we're going to start right from the beginning so chapter 10 verses um let me read one two until i stop one to 12 maybe um but here we're gonna it's gonna start off very similar and yet we'll 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 get quite a few differences here luke chapter 10 verse 1 after these things the lord appointed 70 others also and he sent them two by two before his face 
into every city and place where he himself was about to go. He said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I stop there for a second. All right. So he chooses 70 men. He has his 12, which are now the 12 apostles. He chose another 70 men from that crowd of people that used to follow him around. How many people used to follow Jesus around? In, in the hundreds, right? Uh, thousands when it was miracle times. But in, when Jesus traveled, there were still hundreds of people that used to follow along and try to listen in and try to learn. Uh, and yet out of those hundreds... Jesus finds 70. Which is interesting, because even within these verses, what does he say? That the laborers are few. So you can think of those hundreds as his church, right? This was his congregation. And yet even out of a whole congregation, people that follow Jesus around, that listen to the message, only 70 were ready. Only 70 did Jesus actually consider as his laborers. And yet, what was their job? Well, according to verse 1, what was their purpose? For those that, oh, I think, is it on the screen? There it is. I was wondering why everyone was always looking up. Now I know. They were preparing the way for him, right? They weren't going into new fields and doing their own job and disappearing. No, they would go ahead of Jesus into a town, prepare them for Jesus. That is exactly what we are. Our job is simply to prepare. I, Jesus has the perfect example for this, the perfect parable, uh, which is the, the farmer, right? The one that plants the seeds. And if you really picture it, here's a man with, let's just use one seed just to keep it simple. He has a seed, and he throws it into the ground, right? Uh, nowadays, I think we do a lot more. We till the ground, and then we take care of it, especially if you have a small field. But, but Jesus was talking about these farmers that had large plantations, right? And when he tells the story, he's just throwing, the man throws the seed, right? The man that throws the seed, how much more work was he going to do to that ground? <laughs> Not much, right? He was going to have to rely on the rain. He wasn't going to go around watering every seed there. No, he was going to depend on the rain. He was going to depend that the soil would get kind of turned over and that the seed will go inside and that the seed would grow. How much work then did the man actually have in the growth of that seed? It's minuscule, right? He would simply take that seed and try to get it to the right soil. Try to get it to the right spot so that it could get good soil and good rain and good sun and, and have the ability to grow because... Well, let's take, let's take a, a hobbyist farmer here. So someone that really takes care of their field. They have, you know, a, maybe a six-by-six-foot garden. You know, first we till the ground. We put fertilizers in there. We, we get the soil all ready. We plant the seeds. We cover them up. We water them right away, right? And then we pick out the weeds, and we water the plants. And, you know, you can, you can take care of this every day. Right? You can take care of it every day and make sure it's really good. But at the end of the day, even in a situation like that, how responsible is that person to the actual growth of that seed? 
it's still minuscule, right? We, we really have no part in the actual growing of that seed. The best we can do is make a good atmosphere for that seed because that seed growing, that's God, right? There is, there is nothing a human can do, right? Maybe scientists nowadays in some lab with genomes and, you know, they can maybe... But in terms of normal farming, at the end of the day, the best you can do is simply prepare what's around that seed to have that seed grow. At the end of the day, God is the one that grows that seed. Right? That's us. That's us. I know, you know, we have family members, we have friends, I'm assuming. And I'm sure you've had situations where you're like, I've told this person everything. They know the truth. You know, I, I... brought them to church for maybe a baby dedication for this and I've given them the example and I've, I've done every single thing possible. They know the truth. Why in the world have they not accepted it? We get into situations like that. Why hasn't this happened? It's God. It's, it's very simple. At the end of the day, we're talking about a choice that has to be made between that person and God. And there's nothing you can really do outside of, you know, tending what's around that person. But at the end of the day, it's it's, it's a simple choice between that person and God, just like that seed and God to grow. All right? And that's what these men did. They would go ahead of Jesus two by two, preparing the way. So when Jesus got there, it's as if the, the soil had been tilled. As if the water had been thing. But then it was up to Jesus at the end of the day to actually reach these people and change their hearts. He says that the harvest was great, but the laborers were few. Verse 3 is an interesting one. Uh, again, Jesus, it's always backwards with him. I don't know. It's, he's so not human, I guess in the way we think. So he sends them off two by two. And then verse three, he says, go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. So right from the beginning, he's making it very clear. The job I'm giving you to do, is it going to be easy or is it going to be hard? It's going to be hard. Is it going to be dangerous? Yeah, it's going to be dangerous. If you're a lamb in amidst wolves, there's a good chance you're not coming back, right? That's what we're hearing here. And yet, Jesus says this. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. It's, it's going to be dangerous. And after saying all those things, look what he says next. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals. He just admitted that this was going to be very hard to do. And so instead of trying to help them and equipping them and getting them ready, tells them to take nothing. But in doing that, he's equipping them with God. So here we see the same message. All right? So here we get to see a similarity here. Whether you're the the important person that God has chosen specifically for this or whether you're the everyday person who's simply going out there to try to influence the world, 
one, it's going to be hard, but two, you still need that prime peace, which is God. God has to be everything in this story. And he continues on in the same verse, and greet no one along the road, but whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if the son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. And remain in that same house, eating and drinking such things as they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. What is he saying by that? Accept their hospitality. Don't, um, I think he even says, uh, let me read just the next sentence here. Do not go from house to house. It's interesting. All right? The first house that you meet, the first person that accepts you with peace, stay there. Stay there, accept their food, accept their water, accept their hospitality. And don't start jumping other houses. What's Jesus saying here? This, this is, again, it's kind of outside of our nature. But what is he saying here? Why is this important? Part of it, okay, part of it is the relationship, right? Why, why would a person kind of leave after a few days? Possibly. I'm vegan. You keep giving me meat. Um, that's a possibility. There's a... There's a uh, a more human reason why we'd probably get out. Yeah, you feel like a burden, right? You know, if you go into this town and you stay for a day or two, that's fine. But if you stay for a week, start staying for two weeks, you start getting this feeling like, does the person even want me to stay here, right? Am I being a burden to them? Am I kind of encroaching into something? And yet Jesus is saying, don't think that way. If you find a person of peace, stay there and accept it. Accept it gladly. The water, the drink, the hospitality, everything. And, and what's the reason that he gives? What's the reason that he gives here? Yeah, a laborer is worthy of his wages. This is, this is important. Um, Ellen White talks about this a little bit. Kind of off topic, but it's connected. When she used to talk about the books she used to write and the pamphlets and things like that, um, she says, never sell the books too cheaply. Which again, it kind of sounds weird, right? Because for us, we want to get as many out, so let's make it as inexpensive as possible right? so that more people can buy she says no don't make it too inexpensive why because it's valuable because naturally if you see something for ten dollars and something for 50 cents which one has more value the thing for ten dollars and that's what she's trying to say people you for, for as as the person giving the book as the person selling the book you have to realize that this book is valuable and you have to treat it as something valuable and that's what Jesus is saying here when you work for God it's valuable there's 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 worth there and you should never feel as if you're encroaching into someone and that's why he's saying you have to find someone of peace because not everyone 
would just accept someone into their house for a month. Right? So f- when you find that right person, who again, the reason they're helping you, if they, have, if they truly have that love and that peace for you, it's because they also see the value you're doing. And for Jesus, that's vital. This whole chapter is going to be about that idea of value. Alright? When we work for God, never work as if what you're doing is meaningless. Which can actually be a bit hard sometimes. Especially, I think this is most churches, you know, you do do an evangelistic series. And the first time you do one, you go all out, right? You get the best of everything. You, you really make sure you, that money is not an issue and time's not an issue and everyone comes out. And, and then how many visitors show up? Nobody or very few. How do you feel at the end of that? Feel down. And when it comes down to do the next evangelism, it's not quite at the same level. And the third one and the fourth. And then by the end... You're doing it, and it's sad. You're doing it, but in the back of your head, you're like, what's the purpose? We're not going to get any visitors. We're not going to get anything out of this. That feeling, that idea, is the worst thing you can have. Because what you're saying isn't that your evangelism isn't worth it. What you're saying is God's message isn't worth it. That's the key here. Jesus is saying, always recognize the value of your work when you're working for God. Never give up on that. But you may say, but what about that that, that evangelism we did that nothing happened? What about this evangelism that nothing happened? Um, Look at Jeremiah. He's called a weeping prophet for a reason. Here's this man that God chose. No one wanted to be a prophet, by the way. He's, he's included in there. He didn't want to be a prophet. And yet, right from the beginning, God says, I'm going to have you preach to my people. And nobody's going to listen to you. But I want you to do it anyways. I mean, if you think of the most depressing career of your life, it's that. You're going to work your whole life, and you're going to fail. At least in your eyes. At least in your eyes, you failed. But to God, he did exactly what God told him to do. So to God, he was a success. And we're going to see why in a second. Uh, Evangelism, according to this chapter, is very, very different than what you think it is. Again, it's Jesus being completely backwards here. All right? But he's saying... For one thing, they're going out two by two this time. All right? Notice the difference there. In the first one, he never says that. In this chapter, he says, go two by two. The importance of teamwork. The importance of working with others. It's just going to be as hard. I want you to take nothing because I want you to depend on me. I want you to depend on God. And I want you to realize your value. And your work's value. Never take that for granted. Keeps going. Verse 8. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. 
and heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. This is interesting. Because who used to say this? John the Baptist used to say it and Jesus used to say it. All right? The kingdom of God is in your presence. Right? It's in your presence. What, what, what was he saying by that? I am the kingdom of heaven. Right? He's saying, I am the kingdom. I am the reign of God. And yeah, and remember, these people would go before Jesus. Jesus hadn't even been in that city yet. And yet Jesus is saying, when you go there ahead of me, and they accept you, you're to say what? The kingdom of God has come near to you today. Look how closely he is connecting you to himself. By you being there, God has been there. God has been close to that town. Realize what he's saying by that. Realize the importance and the honor and just everything that goes with that when he says something like this. Verse 10. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, the very dust of your city which clings to us we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. So even those that reject, right, even those that reject, you say the same thing. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable in the day of Sodom than for that city. All right. When he, when he says this last sentence here, that it'll be more tolerable for Sodom, which we all know is one of the worst cities on earth, right, in the history of the earth. It's going to be, it's going to be, they have better chances of going to heaven than you do. Now remember this. Who has gone to that town? Just you. Jesus hasn't even arrived there yet. But your work, the work that you did as a single person, as a simple member of this church, the work that you did going to that place, because they rejected you and the message that you brought, Sodom is in better hands than that town. Think about that. We're not talking about Jesus here. You know, if it was Jesus doing that, we'd be like, oh, that, that makes sense. They rejected Jesus, right? And yet, Jesus is saying the exact same thing with your life. As an ordinary member of a church, when you go out and when you talk to someone, when you share the faith, when they reject you, this is what's going on. Because they're rejecting him, him. Because that's what it says, right? The kingdom of, of God has been near to you. But I want you to, I want you to remember this. You know, when, when we knock on doors or when we talk to a neighbor or when we, you know, never take it for granted. Because I think that's the problem. We're taking it for granted. We either think it's not going to work, right? Even before we've knocked on the door, we're like, why am I even doing this? 
They don't want to care about this. They don't care about this. We've already neglected the job, the ministry, the importance. Because God is saying, listen, if they reject it, it's as if they've rejected me. Right? I'll use another example. This is an extreme one. Uh, Elisha. Elisha and the bear. Everyone knows the story, right? It's classic. Why does the bear come out? Against those youth. Does anyone remember the story? Because they mocked him because he was bald. Right? They used to call him old bald man or old baldy or something like that. Think about this. These kids were making fun of a human being. But it was God's representative. And look how God reacted in that situation. You've gone after one of my representatives. You've gone after me. When we work for God, we are standing for God. We're doing His work. There is nothing more important than that. There's nothing more powerful than that. Even though Jesus here very clearly says, listen, some are going to accept. A lot aren't going to accept, right? He makes that very clear. Don't think that working for God is easy. Don't think that just because God is with you that it's going to be rainbows and all the doors are going to magically open. No, he's very realistic here. People will reject you. And that's very bad for them. Right? He breaks into this. He's going to talk about a few different cities now. Verses 13 to 16. This is a continuation. Now he's, he's kind of going on a run here. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. So again, God is taking these proud Jewish cities that should know the truth and comparing them to the worst cities in the Old Testament. The enemies of God. And yet he's saying, if I had gone to them with this message, if they had seen what you had seen, they would have repented. But it will be more tolerable for, for Tyre and, and... Is it Sidon? I don't even know how you say it. Sidon? At the judgment then for you, and you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. Look at verse 16. This is the kind of the, the key to this check, the section here. He who hears you, he's talking to the average member now. He's talking to the average person sitting in the pews. He who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. It's never just a little job we do. It's never simply, I mean, take the trip to the old folks' home. That wasn't just about singing. And that wasn't just about a, a little message. That was about bringing God to those people. That's what happened there. That's the reality of that situation there. 
And we have to realize the benefits of that and the importance of that. I mean, think about it. It, it shouldn't come down to, oh, the church is doing this this afternoon. Should I go or should I just go home and sleep? Right? If we really understood the, the importance of God's work, there would never be any sort of discussion. That's what you would do. That would be, you, you would be waiting all week for that opportunity. That's working for God. That's the importance of working for God. Next section. Verses 17. Now listen, this is, this is interesting because same storyline here. Very similar structure to chapter 9. In chapter 9, he sends out the 12. We get this little commercial, just like we had this one here, talking about these other cities. And then they come back, right? Same thing happens here. He sends out the 70, does a little commercial, and then the 70 come back. Look at the difference, though, which is kind of sad because the first 12 were like the leaders of the church. They're the ones that everyone kind of leaned on and, and you know, kind of expected the best from. Though, again, Jesus was harder on them. So maybe that's the difference here. But look at the difference that we see between the 12 and the 70. Verse 17. Then the 70 returned with joy. Same thing, right? They both came back joyful. They both came back happy and alive. Saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. The huge difference between this and the last chapter. The last chapter, Lord, look at everything that we did. And here, they still mention themselves. They're part of the process, right? Even the demons listen to us, but in your name. In your name. They realize where the power came from. They realize that everything that they did, they did because of Jesus, because of God. And it makes a huge difference here. The, the response that Jesus now is going to have with these 70, very different than the response from the 12. He doesn't take them off into a corner somewhere in the desert. No, he's going to talk to them. Though again, he's Jesus. So he's never going to give you the response that you expect. He's always going to somehow flip it on its head. But let's see his response here. So they're all happy. They praise God for their work. And then the message of Jesus, verse 18. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. This is kind of sad. Realize that just a few days ago, the disciples had come back, the big 12. They came back from doing the exact same work, but did Jesus give all these promises? And No, they just got sent off into the desert. But here Jesus encourages them. Well, you think you've done something? Wait until you... There's more than this. There's more power where that comes from. You're going to be able to do things that you'd never imagine. But he always put the twists. He always puts a twist at the end there. So nothing by any means will hurt you. Nevertheless... And this is the key to the last two chapters. 
Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Sounds strange. Here are these men. And I think, for Advent, I think this works perfectly for Adventists because we call this world the great controversy, right? We know that we're at war. We know that there is a cosmic battle between the forces of God and of good and the forces of Satan and of evil. Both have angels, good angels and bad angels, and, and we're stuck in this middle, in this battleground, and yet God has given power to these simple people not just to conquer people, but they're conquering demons. The demons have to listen to them because of the name of Jesus. And yet Jesus is saying, that shouldn't be what makes you happy. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are are written in heaven. Again, notice that he doesn't say this to the disciples. <laughs> disciples are never given this promise that their names are written in heaven. But these 70 do. Right? But let's go back a few verses. Why were, verse 17, why were they happy? Why were they happy? Success of their mission. They did evangelism, right? They evangelized. They went into the cities. They preached about Jesus. Should that make you happy? Especially when it works? Oh, yeah. If you guys did an evangelism here and you, you know, you fill this building and by the end of the, the thing you've baptized 50 people, how happy would you guys be? You guys would be, you guys would be all over the mission spotlight and magazines all over the place with that story, Right? How happy would you be? And yet Jesus is saying this. That isn't what should make you happy. That makes no sense. That makes no sense. If anything, you would think God would say, that's when you should have a party. That's, I mean, you just brought 50 people into the kingdom of heaven. But he's saying, that's not where your joy should come. Your joy should come from what? The fact that your names are written in heaven. This is what Jesus is doing with this sentence. Which again is completely backwards. Evangelism isn't about the other people. Evangelism is about saving yourself. Which again sounds completely backwards. But that's what Jesus is saying in this verse. I sent you out there on a mission and you succeeded. I mean, they did exactly what God wanted, right? They didn't go with anything. They trusted in God. They realized it was God. There was a success in their work. They came back happy. And so in their minds, the evangelism was a success. Because they baptized people, because they brought people to God. In God's eyes, the success is simply this. I told you to do something and you did it. 
That's the greatest success God can ever have. You actually listened to me. And you did it the way I wanted it to be done. Because think about it. He sent off 70 people. How easily would it have been for someone to be like, listen, I'm just going to take a little bit of money just in case. Right? Because we might end up in a town where no one's going to accept us. So let's just take a look. But no, they, they just listened to God. They went out there with nothing. They trusted in him. They came back. And they did all this great work. But, and this is strange, but to God, the evangelism was you. When God sent you out, he was trying to save you. Now think about this. When your church does something, when you do a program, when you do evangelism, and you decide, I'm already a member, I'm busy, I'm tired, I'm going to stay home. What just happened? Yeah, when your church does evangelism, when God asks you to do something for the church and you decide, I'm tired, you've just rejected it. You've just rejected it. And you were, you were the heart of it. This was planned for you. Now, this seems contrary to everything you've probably heard in the last couple of years. Because um, if, if you've been paying attention to uh, the newest wave evangelizing, uh, the message is always do less for yourselves, right? Every time we do a program, it seems, to, seems as, as if it's always for us, right? And we should be doing more for the community. And that's, that's actually completely right, all right? But even when you're doing things for the community, I want you to realize that you are just as much a part of God's saving idea as those people. Because I want you to realize this. The 70 men that went out, how much did they actually do? Think about the farmer again. Jesus sent out 70 men. And a lot of people accepted God, and that, that's all fine and good. But could, could God have used other 70 people? He could have used anybody. I mean, that's the thing we have to realize is God can use anybody he wants. The Bible says he can use rocks if he needs. In fact, if he used rocks, I think a lot more people would accept God. Because if you saw rocks talking, you'd listen. Right? But no, he chooses us. Why? Because we're just as important in that act of salvation than the people we're talking to. The reason God has chosen you is because God wants you to listen to Him more and to follow Him more. God is going to reach those people. And if you can use us, that's just an extra blessing. That's an add-on. But what Jesus is trying to do here, and that's, this is why He was saying there's so few workers because so few of them were willing to actually listen. Out of all of his church, it was 70 men that did the job. 
the importance of the work. Let's keep going. Verses 21. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit. And this, this is really sad. When you compare both chapters together, it just makes the disciples look worse and worse. And Again, the disciples went off. They did their work. They came back. Did Jesus rejoice? No. Did Jesus say that their names were written in heaven? No. Did he say that they could step on snakes and do all this, drink poison? No. With the disciples, because they failed, right? The one thing God was trying to put inside of them, they didn't learn. So when they came back, it was a failed test. So Jesus had to go into another test. In this case, it's so different. In this case, he sends out these 70 men. They came back and they learned. They listened. They followed. So when he comes back, you hear this huge difference in Jesus' voice. He's proud of them. He, he tells them, you guys are going to do even more than this. Your names are written in the books of heaven. And he even gets to a point that he gets so filled by the Spirit that he just starts praising. That's, that's what this, this paragraph is here. The seven year turn. No, that's uh, verse 22. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit. All right, When the Bible says that, that's, you're not just rejoicing. This is the Holy Spirit is inside of you and you can't help it. You can't help, but just, it just comes out of you. All right, This joy, this praise comes out of Jesus through the Spirit. And He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and reveal them to babes. Kind of sounds insulting when you hear it that way. Right? You guys aren't the wise and the prudent. Right? Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. All these have been delivered to me. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Father is, ex- who the Son is, except the Father. And who the Father is except the Son. And to the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Then He turned to His disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. To hear what you... Oh, wait. The, to see the things that you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it. And to hear what you hear and have not heard it. This section here now, and again, this is, this is God being led by the Spirit now completely. What is he saying in these few verses here? You can read it over there, I think, from verses 21, 21 to 24. What is, what is God really saying in these verses? Hmm? They got it. That's, that's the first thing, right? He realizes, you know, if I had chosen any other people, this wouldn't have happened, right? If I had gone to the, to the wise, to the educated, to the, to the prudent, to the ones that kind of you would expect to understand lessons and to follow them and to accomplish them. If I had used anyone else, it, it wouldn't have worked, which is kind of sad because he had just tried it with, 
with the 12. Right? This is, it's a really important lesson, again, for me, for the everyday member of the church. Because um, the fact is, we all have different gifts. Right? We all have different gifts. Um, and there's a lot of gifts, but at the end of the day, you can divide the gifts into two categories. There's the gifts that everybody sees. The preacher, the singer, the, you know, the teacher. There's the ones that kind of stand up at the front. And then there's the ones in the background. And unfortunately, it's very easy for those in the background to feel as if they, they're worth less. Right? What I, can, what I do, you can never compare to what a pastor does or to what an elder does or to what the, the singer does. Or, you know, we, a lot of us feel that way. We feel as if my importance in the church isn't very important. And yet here, Jesus, again, is flipping everything up on its head. Right? He took the 12. He took, he took the ones that were at the front, the leaders. Right? The preachers, the ones that were with Jesus. He tried it with them. Came back with nothing. And then he took seven of the background people. And he sent them off. Changed everything. If you're working for God, no matter what you do, it's important. And there's value to it. If, if by no one else, by God. And if God finds value in it, who cares what everyone else thinks? But that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying every single person that's with me is important to me. And if they, if, they, if they listen to me and if they do what I've asked them to do, as small as it may be in our eyes, to God, it's the huge success. Huge. Huge, life-changing success. I'll give you a, a quick example they did a, a statistics survey, something back in the day, uh, and they were asking people what the most important thing of a church was. What really made them decide whether they would stay in the church, go out of the church, whether they liked the church or not like the church. You know what the answer was? You never guessed. What do you think? How the bathrooms were. It was the bathroom of all the things. If the bathroom was clean, if it smelled nice, if it was comfortable. That's why they would come back. Makes no sense. Right? But now think about the person that cleans the bathroom. If that's true, if though and again, this is more of a subconscious thing. But they would naturally not go back to a church where it was dirtier or whatever, you know. And we think about the person that cleans the bathroom. 
Might not even know who the person is. Might not get any respect. Might not. And yet here we're hearing that, no, that job is vital, as it turns out. It's vital as to whether someone will enjoy their church experience and whether they'll come back. Everyone thinks it's the preacher at the front. You know, whether the sermon was good or whether the, the Sabbath school was good. Whether... Everyone is important in their job. And it changes people's lives like you wouldn't imagine. Like you would never expect. But it's the reality. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He, he chose the, the weak and the, and the little, the babes. And he's so happy that he did. Because they took the message, they took that mission, and they did it with all their hearts. And they, they, they realized the importance of it, and they came back. They rejoiced, and Jesus rejoiced. Verses 24, for me, I think it's important to us. Uh, he's looking at his disciples, and he's saying, you guys don't know how lucky you are. Because everyone in the Old Testament was looking forward to this day. All of them were hoping for this Messiah, hoping for this man that would change Israel, that would change the world. And now you're here with me and you guys don't even realize it. I've always wondered, the disciples must kick themselves when they finally understood that Jesus was God. That they could have asked Jesus anything in the world. And he had the answer. They could have asked questions about creation. They could have asked questions about family members. Because he knew. And they wasted their whole life with him. Fighting about who was the best. How they must have kicked themselves when they realized that. But that's what Jesus is saying. You have no idea how lucky you are in the time period that you're living. And I would say that you don't realize how lucky you are. Because even more important than Jesus coming to the earth the first time is Jesus coming back the second time. And you look, in, you look at the news, you look at everything that's going on in the world. There's not a lot. This is it. This is it. We're living through the most important event in this earth's history. We're living through it right now. You know, we could have done a prophecy thing and we could show how all these prophecies are coming true. And we know it. We know the earth's coming to an end. We know that the prophecies are all lined up. You read through Revelation. I don't know if you realize this, but like 99% of it isn't Revelation anymore. It's history. Most of it's already happened. Here we are living at the very edge. And yet none of us realize, or none of us live as if it is. We're just as bad as the disciples who are living with Jesus, with the Son of God, and they, they just don't clue in. And here we are living at the very edge of the end of the world, and yet we live our lives like it was any other day. An ordinary day on this planet. That's what Jesus is saying here. Realize what moment you're living in. 
appreciate it. Use that moment. Live in that moment. Verses 25. Let's keep going. There's always a lawyer that stands up in one of these days. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Very good question, right? And think about it. We just read this last verse that basically says, You have no idea who I am. You can ask me anything in the world. And here's this one man that actually asks the important question. Because here's this person that can actually save you. So if you're going to ask how to be saved, he's the one to ask. And yet, realize how this story is written. He's not asking this question to actually know the answer. He's just asking it to trap Jesus. Why didn't Peter ask that question? Why didn't John, why didn't any of his disciples ask that simple question? God, what do we actually need to do to be saved? Where do you read that in the Bible? When did any of the disciples ask that question? Instead, it's, who's going to be on your right? Who's going to be on your left? Who's going to... Here's this man that actually asks the right question, who, without realizing it, realizes where he is in this, in this story of history. He's standing in front of God. So if you're going to ask a question, now is the time. And so he asks it. What do I need to do to, to inherit internal life? Unfortunately, he's asking for the wrong reasons. Doesn't stop Jesus from actually giving the answer, though. But of course, Jesus does it in his style. And instead of answering it, he asks another question. Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? How do you understand that? 27, so he answered and said, and again, this guy gives the perfect answer, by the way. This guy's a genius. He's just not on the right page. He answered and said, you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Again, what was the question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And the answer that the man gives is, love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Is that the right answer? Yeah, he gave the right answer. Even Jesus says so, right? He said to him, you have answered rightly. So the, when someone asks you, what, what, what's, the, what's the secret to eternal life? What's the answer? That's exactly what this man said. So the Bible is very simple here. It tells us exactly what we need to do to inherit eternal life. Easiest answer. And this is the thing. And they could have asked, they could have asked Jesus a hundred of these questions. Right? Some easy ones, which is, Jesus, is the Sabbath until the end? Or are we going to stop when you die? Yeah, I wish someone had asked that. It would have made Adventism a lot easier. Um, but they could have asked all these questions. But no, the enemy had to go and ask one. Jesus answers, you've answered rightly. Uh, but unfortunately, because he's on the wrong page, he, he keeps going. Though again, it's a great question. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? 
Now we get the little story. I'm going to read it quickly. I, we, I know we all, we all know the story. Um, but I want you to realize that Jesus, again, he knows he's being tricked here. He knows what's going on. But he's going to use that opportunity to not necessarily answer this question, but he's going to re-answer the first question, but in a more physical way. Instead of answering who my neighbor is, he's answering, well, what does it mean to love the Lord and, and with all your heart and soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself? So this is Jesus' answer to that question. Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to, Jer uh, to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. All right? Which is pretty much Jesus' way of saying, this is who you are. This is the average human being. Someone that literally is just dying. On this planet, just dying. Now, by chance, a certain priest came down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. So he uses the two people that, that should know, right? He uses the priest, he uses the Levite. Which is supposed to be the most religious, the most connected to God. And then he uses the most hated. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. We learn about this lesson, right? We know that when, when you have sympathy, it's one thing. But when you have compassion, what happens? You act on it, right? We all learned that at Saturday school today. You act on it. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he sent him, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come, I will repay. This is above and beyond. Above and beyond. If this man was walking on his donkey, was he busy? Sure he was. And we know he was busy because he's a Samaritan. And Samaritans don't hang around Jerusalem. If they're going to Jerusalem, they're on business. They're going to go there and they're going to come back as quick as they can. All right. So he was a busy man who had his life, just like we do. We have our lives. We're busy. We're always on the go. And it's unfortunate, but a lot of times we're the first two people. There's someone in need and we just keep going because we're busy. Because we have our own lives to take care of. But this Samaritan stops his own life. You know, if he'd woken up in the morning and, and his prayer was, keep me alive, he would have kept going. Because he's on a dangerous road. We know this. The guy got mugged there. But he stops. And he takes time to bandage him. And he puts wine and he puts oil, two of the most expensive things 
of that time for him. Puts him on his own animal. Forces him to walk. Takes him to an inn. Spends the whole day taking care of him. Loses a whole day because of this stranger. The next morning, he gives money. And he says, and if you spend more, I'll give you more. This is beyond. This is what it means to love the Lord God with all your heart. And as your neighbor. I didn't even want to mention the neighbor because in Sabbath school, what did we learn? When you do something to the least of these, you're doing it to me. So the idea of loving God and loving your neighbor really doesn't make sense. It's really just loving God. Because God is the neighbor. But this is the answer. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who shows mercy on him, then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. We talked about in the morning that God has to come first, period. And we talked about that God doesn't just want you to go preach. Now, and, and it's funny because a lot of us don't do it. Why? Oh, I don't know how to do Bible studies. I don't know how to talk to people. That are, that's not even what Jesus is caring about. That's not what I meant in the morning, if, if, in case you got confused. It's not about knowing how to talk about Jesus. No, the, the, the key is just knowing who Jesus is. If you know who Jesus is, it doesn't matter whether you know how to do Bible studies or whether you know how to talk or I just take Moses. Moses told God right in the beginning, I don't know how to speak. Does God care? No. Because you have the one thing that matters to me. You know who I am. We just met. This experience is the only thing that's important to me. Everything else I'll cover. Putting God first. Knowing God believing in God, which really goes into the beginning of this chapter, which is, if you know God, if you understand God, then you understand the importance of working for Him. The honor of working for Him. Never putting Him off to the side. Never making the decision whether you're going to go home or or work for God, because God is always going to win. If you know Him. And we can use a lot of examples. You know, when you, when you first fall in love with someone, and I'm going to talk about it at the beginning, because I know as things age, the love kind of fizzles a little bit. But when you first meet someone, and you fall in love with completely, and they ask you out, how long do you wonder, should I go out or should I just go home? Rest. It's not even a question. When you're in love with someone, if they give you an hour, if they give you a second 
you're going to jump on that second. You're going to take whatever opportunity you can to be with that person. That's God. That's working for God. That's ministering for God. That's the desire. That's the love that we should have. That's what God is looking for. And just trusting Him. Just doing it. I told you before we were going to explain the, the idea with Jeremiah and, and some of the other stories. The reason God sees it as a success, that's what, the reason why Jeremiah was a success to God is because Jeremiah did it. He listened. There was one person that listened. That's the greatest day for God. That's all that matters. Because think about it. God already knew that no one was going to listen. But Jeremiah did. For God, getting one is better than getting zero. You know, when you do evangelism here at church, when you go out, when you do fun fairs and all these other things, there's going to be times where there's going to be lots of people. There's going to be times where there's going to be nobody. I've done evangelism where nobody showed up. And it's depressing at the moment. But we have to keep in mind, God asked me to do something. And I did it. So even if no one shows up, is God happy? Yes. Because we listened. We listened. Now the great thing with God, and this is what we see in the disciples, this is what we see in the 70, is even if nothing happens, but if we do it, we've connected with God now. And maybe that's what God needed in the first place. Now you're connected. Now you're in the right spot to be sent out to bring them in. We like to blame it on the people on the outside. Society's changed. Technology's changed. You know, with all this TV, people have really short you know, spans of thinking. Most of the time, it's us. If we're honest. You know, how many times have you gone to someone thinking it's already not going to happen? Most of the time it's us. And maybe all those evangelistic things, maybe all those meetings, maybe all those events, maybe God wasn't trying to get the outside. Maybe God was trying to get you. The last little verses here, verses 38 to 42, um, very much connects to that idea. Uh, it's a story that we all know, Mary and Martha. Um, but when we're reading this, I want you to think about the work that the church does and how we plan for it and how we execute it and how we judge it compared to this story. Verses 38, Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, 
who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted by much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. It's a classic story here. We have two sisters. Jesus gets invited to the house. If Jesus gets invited to the house, what was the purpose of that? What was the purpose of getting invited or inviting Jesus into your house? Why would you do it? To entertain, right? And to hear him. If you've invited Jesus, it's because you want to hear him. You want to see what he's, what he's offering. Now think about how backwards this is. Jesus came to the house to talk, to share. And here's a woman that's willing to listen. Who's listening to Jesus. Who's actually fulfilling the reason why Jesus was invited in the first place. And then there's Martha. Now what was Martha doing? If you're a deaconess, you probably know this. <laughs> right? You were downstairs in the kitchen getting the plates ready and getting the cutlery ready and getting the food ready and heating it up. Why? To serve Jesus, right? Because you've invited Him to hear Him. But instead of fulfilling that purpose, you're spending all this time thinking that you're going to fulfill that purpose, but you're actually just missing out. When we do something at church, whether it's an organization, even a Sabbath, why are we doing what we're doing? It's great to have food ready and to have everything ready to go and it's great for visitors and it's great for everyone else. But if you're losing the focus, what's the point? That's what Jesus is saying. And this goes right back to the beginning of this chapter. The whole reason for this chapter, which is the message, the mission, is the most important part. It's everything. Mary was like those 70 disciples who you know what, didn't care about the money or the food or she just went to hear Jesus. Martha, wanting to hear Jesus, was distracted and not able to hear Jesus. When you do something at this church, keep Jesus centered. And don't lose track of that. Don't lose the focus on that. And in fact, when you do something yourself, you know, you invite people over. I know I've, I've gone to Bible studies or Friday night prayer meetings and things like that. And I've gone to some that are so fancy that have, you know, first there's like a tea time and then there's some food and then there's... And the Bible study, I think, sometimes gets lost within that whole thing. And I'm like, where was the Bible study <laughs> You know, we, we, we plan on doing something, but we, we put so many other things in there that the heart of it gets lost. 
And think about this. Why do we do it? Why did we make that extra food? Why? It's sad, but what's really going on is they might not like the message. The message might not be good enough, might not be enough, but at least they can be happy with the food we gave or with the drink we gave. That's what we're saying. That's what we're doing when we organize it in that fashion, right? The key, and this is what Jesus is saying, the key is the message. It's just obeying him. It's following what he's told you to do. Everything else Jesus will do. He'll make it work. Does that make sense? It doesn't end with chapter 9 and 10. If, if you guys have a chance throughout the week, um, keep reading. Uh, Luke, again, is, is very much designed that way. He's, he's not just telling you who Jesus is. There's a message in every chapter. There's a purpose behind it all. He's very much a teacher in that respect. Um, so you can continue on in those lessons. I just touched two chapters. That's it. Uh, but by all means, try to continue reading. Try to learn a little bit more. Um, again, the difference between just reading the Bible and actually taking time to study it. God, thank you, Lord, so much. Uh, Lord, as I got here this morning, as I heard all the different things that this church was doing, uh, it really is a church that's, that's blessed by you, Lord. Um, just continue guiding them, Lord, and leading them. And um, Just as you said, the harvest is ready, Lord. There's a lot of people here, even in Belleville, that are just waiting to receive your message, your word, Lord. And God, even though there's very little that we can do, I pray that we just listen to you and that when you send us out that we'll just follow your example, that we'll do, do what you say and then trust that you will grow that seed, that you will raise that person, Lord, into one of your children who could also worship here together. God, thank you so much for this Belleville Church, for the opportunity to, to speak on your behalf, Lord, to give your message. Uh, bless everyone that's here. Be with those that couldn't make it here today, Lord. Thank you again for everything. We pray this in your name. Amen.